Before we uh, start with the actual text today, uh, how many of you enjoy, even on occasion, watching a movie? Just, just occasion. I'm not the biggest movie person. I don't generally like uh, movies. I feel like they're they're short. I tend to be more of a TV show kind of guy because they go on and on and on. Uh, but as far as movies go, you enjoy going to see a movie. But how many of you enjoy sitting through the previews? You just, uh, there's literally one hand. I am right there with most of you who don't have your hands up. I despise sitting through the previews. It's my least favorite part. Uh, think about this. Think about how silly this would be. Um, you might even put it with your favorite franchise. I love, I love Star Wars. Um, I love comic book movies. And one of my favorite comic book heroes was Superman. When I was little, I used to love Superman. I love Superman comics. I love Superman TV shows and movies. And they hadn't made one for years. So I went to the theater, and they started showing the preview a few years ago for Man of Steel. And you didn't realize it was a Superman movie until you see the little boy put his hands kind of on his hips, and you see the little cape wave, and it becomes the Superman cape. And I wanted to jump up and cheer and scream because they were finally making a Superman movie. I was so excited. How silly would it have been if I got super excited about the preview, but when the movie finally came out, it was finally in theaters, and you could finally go see it. One of my friends said to me, Hey, Josh, don't you want to go see Man of Steel? And I said, No, I'm happy just with the preview. How silly would that have been? It would have made no sense whatsoever, would it? Because what's the whole purpose of a preview? The whole purpose of the preview is to get you to the movie. It gives you the shadow of the movie. It gives you the idea. It kind of gives you the general purpose of where the movie is going. But it's not the preview's job to tell the whole story. It's not the preview's job to say all the lines and have all the explosions and do all the neat things that you go to the movie to go see. It's the preview's job to get you ready for the movie. Well, what if I were to tell you that the Old Testament, the law, is like the preview for the real thing? That everything you read in the Old Testament, everything you read specifically in the law, is to prepare you for Jesus. That He's the main attraction. He's the main event. And if you were to take and get to the New Testament and get to Christ and turn around and say, No, I would rather not focus on Him. I'm happy to just keep the rules and that'll be my, that'll be my faith. You've stopped at the preview and you've ignored the movie. So I want to read Galatians 3 verses 19 and 20 again this morning. And we're going to stop on a different part of verse 19 than we did last week. So if you will stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Galatians chapter 3 verses 19 and 20. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. It was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you prepared us for the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. That we might understand when he came, who he came for and what he came for and what it means for us. And Lord, I pray that someone would realize that today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
I titled my sermon this, but you could literally write this on the front cover of your Bible and it would be equally as appropriate. Today's sermon is entitled, It's All About Jesus. Um, You could write that at the beginning of the sermon. You could write that at the front of your Bible. Hopefully you could write that on the front of the rest of your life. But it's all about Jesus. Um, The Old Testament, the New Testament, everything in between. It's all about Jesus. So, last week when we talked about verse uh, 19, I stopped after the main question. The main question is, what purpose then does the law serve? All the way through Galatians, Paul has been talking to the people in this church because they are obsessed with keeping the regulations of the Old Testament law. They think that if they keep enough rules, if they do enough good things, if they don't do enough bad things, eventually that's going to make God pleased with them. And Paul had to tell them throughout the first three chapters of this book, you have totally missed the boat. You have totally missed it. It's not about whether or not you keep the rules because you can't keep the rules. It's not about whether or not you've done too many bad things because flash, you already have. It's too late. That ship has sailed. But thank God, it's not about the rules one way or the other. It is about Christ and what He has done for you. So he asked the question, if it's always been about Jesus, if it's always been about the Messiah, then what is the purpose for the law? What is the purpose for all of these rules that can't save you? Then he begins answering that question. First he says it was added because of transgressions. Last week we talked about how one purpose of the law is when the law comes, it points out in us all of the ways that we're wrong. All of the ways that we're bad. Um, If you want to experience this for yourself, go back to the Old Testament. Go to Exodus chapter 20. I won't even burden you with the other 600 odd commandments. I'll just pick out, let's say I'll just pick 10. And if you can handle those 10, you can probably handle the rest of them. Right? Raise your hand if you have perfectly kept the 10 commandments. Anybody? If your hand's up, you broke the one about lying. Yeah, you haven't. Um, None of us have. Pastor included. So what does that mean? Well, if you can't keep the 10, you can't keep the 600 plus. One of the purposes of the law is to come and show you the sin that lives inside you. But today what you're going to see is the law does not provide any mechanism for dealing with it. The law can point out to you that you're a sinner, but it can't make you not one. The law is limited in that way. And so I want us to see first today that Jesus is the gateway to a new relationship with God. Or maybe I should have pointed this as Jesus is the gateway to a new kind of relationship with God. Because the second part of verse 19 says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. Now, who is this? Paul has already told us ahead of time in verse 16 of this same chapter that when he talks about the seed of Abraham, you should have that in capital, that the, the S at the beginning of seed is probably capitalized in your Bible, if you look at it. The reason it's capitalized is because the seed of Abraham that Paul is talking about is Christ. He is Excuse me, the promised offspring of Abraham that he promised way back in the Old Testament. So, 
But Paul is saying that the law was added to point out your sins, to point out the things that you did wrong until Jesus gets here. So what's the point of the law doing this until Jesus gets here? Why is there that almost shelf life on it? If you're like me, you know, maybe you're not anymore. I'm obsessive about this when I go to the store because we have an infant is that when I go to the store, I check expiration dates like you would not believe. I'm terrified of pulling something off the shelf, getting it home and find out it expired three months ago. I'm terrified of that. Um, it ha- it's happened before now. Don't laugh at me. I found some mayonnaise that was three months old, and I bought it that day. I didn't use it. I, I would have been scared to. But what if I were to tell you that the law, all of these rules in the Old Testament, had an effective shelf life? What, what's the purpose for them? Because Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions until the seed, until Jesus should come. Well, Josh, you're making me nervous now. Now you're making it sound like part of the Bible doesn't apply anymore. That's not what I said. I didn't say it didn't apply. I I said it had a useful shelf life. Remember, what's the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to point out your sin. But it's to point out your sin to prepare you for someone. Once that someone arrives, there's no need for the preparation to carry out its task anymore. It still exists, it's still applicable, but the law now has a different purpose in our lives. The law is not preparing me for someone once that person has already arrived. The law is the trailer. Jesus is the movie. It was to get me ready for Him. And I'm not coming up with this. This is directly from Scripture. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This is on your handout. Look at it with me. For the law... So this is all those 600-something commandments that God gave between Genesis and Deuteronomy. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come. Okay? The law itself is not the good things to come. It has a shadow of the good things to come. And not the very image of the things can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. What is the author of Hebrews saying? Well, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Old Testament... The way God dealt with His people in the Old Testament was He gave them this thing called the law. He gave it to them on Mount Sinai. and It was a list of rules that governed every single part of their lives. From what they eat, to what they wear, to the days they're allowed to work on, to who they're allowed to marry, to how they pass on their property, to where they're allowed to live. It was literally everything. Covered their whole lives. And the author of Hebrews says that part of that... And you can go back and check it. Part of that was what we call the sacrificial system. That whenever someone sinned, 
they would have to bring a sacrifice to the temple. And an animal would have to be executed and their blood shed on the altar to show that the penalty for your sin is death. And this animal is dying in your place so that you do not have to. It was a way for their sin to be atoned for. And because people were constantly sinning, they had to constantly bring animals. So the temple, the tabernacle, would have had... Excuse me. Would have had sacrifices going constantly over and over and over and over and over. And the author of Hebrews in the New Testament says, Do you want to know how we know that those animals, that the law was not capable of solving these people's sin problem? Easy, because they had to keep bringing sacrifices. If a sacrifice had solved the problem of their sin, then why didn't they just offer the sacrifice, sin dealt with, and we're done? Say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, the sin was dealt with, right? You commit the sin, you bring the animal, that sin is forgiven. But the sin problem's not dealt with, because what are you going to do tomorrow? You're going to sin again. And what are you going to do the day after that? You're going to sin again. And you're going to sin over and over and over and over and over. Can I, I've always wanted to say this. Can I get a witness that there is someone in this room that understands you sin on a daily basis? Yes. Okay. All right. Every single one of us. You sinned yesterday, and you might ask God to forgive you for it, but you know what you're going to do? You're going to wake up tomorrow, take a breath, stub your toe on the way to the bathroom, and you're going to sin again. You know why? Because sin is not something that exists outside you that just attacks you. Sin is something that exists inside you and comes out. The law is like a diagnosis. It tells you there is a problem that lives deep in your heart. And that problem is called sin. And the best that the sacrificial system could do was give you a Tylenol or an ibuprofen. It can mask the symptoms, but it was never intended to cure the disease. It points it out and it prepares you. So if the law has done its job... You're screaming, somebody give me a doctor to solve this because I can't do anything about it. We can mask the symptoms, we can cover it up, but if I don't get this thing dealt with, the wages of sin is what? If I don't get this thing dealt with, this sin's going to kill me. And God says, no, it's not, it's going to kill me. Because the law was to prepare you for the sacrifice that was going to solve that sin problem once and for all. You can't get saved till you get lost. Until you realize you're lost, you don't have any desire to be found. The law is that big blinking beacon that says you are a lost... It is, it's like that blinking... Did you ever watch Wiley Coyote, Looney Tunes? Did you ever watch this? Oh my goodness... And all the time he's just hurtling toward this cliff that he's about to fly off. And I don't know who put those signs there that's like cliff edge approaching 200 feet. And he doesn't slow down. And eventually he flies off the end and falls and is somehow better 
30 seconds later. The law is like those Looney Tunes signs that when you're going toward the edge of the cliff, it says, hey, death and hell in 200 feet. Death and hell in 150 feet. And the law has you screaming, somebody please stop this thing before I fall into death and hell. But the law never provides the brakes. It just tells you it's coming. <laughs> Which ought to terrify any of us. Especially since the author of Hebrews in verse 4 of that very, very same passage says, It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It doesn't do anything for you in terms of solving your sin problem. It just points it out. <clears throat> but thank God we have Christ. The law was intended to prepare us for Him. And Paul says in Romans 8 verses 2 through 4, The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for what the law could not do. I'm going to stop right there because I feel the need to say this. One of the greatest mistakes in this modern perverted form of Christianity is that the essence of our faith is keeping the law. That's what Paul had to write about in Galatians. If your faith is keeping the rules, trying to do good, trying not to do bad, you need to understand that the very Bible you call holy says that the law can't do it. It doesn't have that ability. Keeping the rules does not have the ability to make, make you Pleasant to God. It just doesn't. What the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, whose flesh? Our flesh. The law is a good thing, it's perfect. The rules are perfect. What's not perfect is us. Which means it doesn't matter if the law is perfect. If we try and keep it, we're going to keep it imperfectly. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in other words, in our likeness, on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, what Jesus does is everything we couldn't. And He did it for us. So that if you are sitting there burdened under that law, burdened under, how am I ever going to keep this? How am I going to do this? God's not going to be happy with me. I can't live up to it. You are 100% right. You can't live up to it. But Jesus lived up to it for you and offers His righteousness to you so that if you will trust Him and walk in the Spirit instead of your own sinful flesh... When you trust Jesus and God looks down from heaven at you, He doesn't see your failure. He sees His Son's victory. It's a total change of relationship with God that the Old Testament saints were looking forward to but never got to experience. They were saved the same way we are, by faith in a Messiah. They were just looking forward to Him and we're looking back. They were never saved by keeping the rules. Any more than we can be. The saints who were saved in the Old Testament had the same relationship with the law that we ought to. They look at the law and said, Man, 
I am totally dependent on the mercy and grace and covenant promises of God because what this law teaches me is that there is no absolute way that I can earn an audience with God on my own. So they look forward to Messiah. We look in the Bible, and not only do we have the benefit of the law, we have the benefit of Jesus who said, Oh, you've heard it said, Thou shalt not murder. But I say, anyone who is even angry at his brother without cause in his heart has committed murder. You heard it said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, any man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her. See, Jesus took the law and hit to its intended purpose, which is always what it was supposed to be. The law was intended to diagnose the heart. They had taken the law and made it the same thing we did on the outside. Either I did it or I didn't. And Jesus said, no, the law is not about what you did or didn't do. The law is about what your heart would do if it didn't have any shackles on it. If God didn't mercifully restrain us, heaven help this earth. Our hearts are twisted and deceptive and wickedly evil. And what the law does is the law points that out and puts some safety bars on us and says, you need, a, you need someone to cure this disease in you. And Christ is that cure. Hebrews 10, verses 8 through 10, previously saying, I, I, I encourage you, go to Hebrews 10. You can basically get the point of my entire sermon from Galatians 3, reading the 10th chapter of Hebrews, almost more clearly than I'm saying it right now, which makes me wonder why I'm doing this anyway instead of just reading Hebrews 10, but that's fine. Hebrews chapter 10, 8 through 10, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Which that, by the way, that's a quote from the Old Testament. Is that the author of Hebrews is saying, wait, God prescribed these sacrifices and offerings for sin, but then turns around and says, these aren't what he wants. Why would he do that? Y'all, honestly, what does God gain by us offering an animal sacrifice? What does he get out of that? He doesn't get anything. He owns the cattle on a thousand kills. He can kill them and light them on fire and barbecue them if he wants to. He doesn't need us to do it. He doesn't get anything out of us giving a burnt offering. But what does He want? He wants real righteousness, which we are incapable because of our sin of doing. So what God does is verse 9, Then He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He, Jesus, takes away the first that He may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's why when we come to church, we sit in pews and sing about the blood that's been shed instead of walking to an altar out back and shedding some more. You will never see a sacrifice in this church. Our sacrifice has been given. And if I may be so bold, this is the reason that we have a cross back here and not a crucifix with Christ still hanging on it. Christ is off the cross. He went in the tomb and He's out. I have no need to put Him back up there because He finished it once for all. That's why, we have, we don't, that's why you don't see Jesus hanging on that cross anymore. 
His sacrifice was done, finished once for all. Jesus is the gateway for us to have a new relationship with God, a new kind of relationship with God, where God is not waiting on you to be righteous. God offers completed, perfect righteousness to you. And you know what? You find out when you accept that gift of righteousness that God offers you in Christ, you start to live a little bit more righteously. And then the longer you walk with Him, you start to discover, huh, those sinful things that I used to enjoy kind of make me feel sick now. It's almost like you seem to change from the inside out. Whereas when you're living by the rules, you're trying to change from the outside in and you can't do it. That my message this morning is either going to be supremely depressing or supremely encouraging. If the pride bug had bit you, it's going to be very depressing. Because if pride had bit you, what you want to do is you want to come to church and you want me to tell you how you can live your best life now. <clears throat> and you can work hard. And if you try hard enough, you'll do what God wants you to do. And I'm standing up here telling you, you can try as hard as you want, and you're never going to do it. It's not going to be good enough. And that's going to depress you if you're wanting to get in on your own merits. But if the law has worked its magic in you, and you have realized you can't earn it by your own merit, then you're going to feel really helpless, and Jesus is going to be like cold water on a hot day. And you're going to say, praise God, you have given me a way out. You've given me freedom. That now I don't have to bear this burden. I'm not under this penalty. You've provided a way for me to be free. And you can be saved and secure and know it today. And I promise, you come to Christ. You say, well, Josh, you're telling me to ignore the rules, ignore righteous living. No, I'm not. You come to Jesus and you'll live holier on accident than you ever lived on purpose without him. I promise you. Well, pastor, you lying. Taste and see. I'm going to leave it at that. Jesus is the gateway to a new relationship with God. But then, second, I want you to see that Jesus is the focal point about the story of God. The reason I start all this out talking about the law is that when we take the law and we try and earn our way into God's good graces, which that's a really funny term because if you've earned your way in, it's not good grace at all. When you try and earn your way into God's pleasure, let me tell you what you do with the entirety of the Bible. When you try and earn your way in, what you do with this entire book is you make it a story about you. That the law was always about you, whether you obeyed it or not. Jesus coming was always about you. It's your story. All of it is about you. That's what obeying the law, that's what earning yourself, that, that's that pride bug biting you again. Here's, here's the, the sneaky little secret about the Bible. It was never about us. None of it. But it's the story of human history. No, it's not. It's the story of redemptive history, which means it's the story of God redeeming us. We're supporting, we're supporting roles. He's the star. How do I know this? Verse 19 again. It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. 
Well, wait a minute. I thought that promise was made to Abraham. Yes, and to his offspring. Did Abraham, is Abraham still alive? No. Abraham died. Is his offspring Jesus still alive? Yes. He is. Jesus was always the point of the story. This is a crucial redirection of focus. Um, God promised Abraham land, offspring, and blessing in Genesis 12, and that all nations would be blessed through his seed, singular, in Genesis 22. Those promises all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Well, what about the promised land? I have a promised land. I have a promised new heaven and new earth that Jesus is going to create and lead me into one day. I'm guaranteed of that. What about, what about offspring? Well, for one, Abraham did have a lot of offspring, but he also had one offspring, capital O, one seed, capital S, in which all the blessings of heaven are given to his offspring, plural. Blessing. Has Christ ever blessed you? Yes or no? Yes. All of these promises find their home in Jesus. I cannot take credit for what I'm about to read but it was worth reading it and giving Tim Keller credit rather than not reading it all because he did it better than me. So I'm going to read this excerpt from one of his lectures, I think to a bunch of pastors, on how the Bible is all about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people for God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so that we, like Jacob, only receive wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. 
Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you, it's about him. That's not the first time I've read that or heard that, but first time I did, it hit me like a punch in the stomach. And I realized, how many years have I been thinking this story's about me? And then I hear people like Alistair Begg preaching on David and Goliath where he says you go out and you read David and Goliath and how all this story is about five smooth stones and the five smooth stones are justice and faith. And, and then you get confused because David only used one and you have to figure out what the other four were that didn't matter. But then you go out and you, he fights Goliath and it's about slaying your giants through faith. No, it's not. It's about Jesus being the one who steps out to represent everybody else who couldn't win the fight. And he steps out there and slays the giant through the power of God for us and delivers us. It's about Jesus. Keeping the rules is not about you. It's about Jesus. All of this is about Jesus. And half the time, the reason we can't see it is we're so hungry to be talking about. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Or do you like my cat who woke me up in the middle of the night last night, pawing at the door, screaming, it's not about you. It's about It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's always been about His glory. It's not a look at me, look at me, look at me book. It's a look at Him. And when we take the Bible, when we take especially the law, and we start turning it around and say, how is this about us? How is this about us? Then we miss what it's trying to say every single time. The Bible is accomplishing what God set it out to do when you rightly take the Bible and say, what can I learn about Him? What is He doing? What did He do with us? Not what can I do with me. It's what has Jesus done? The promises were made to Jesus. Everything has always been about Him. Any of y'all ever heard somebody say, Well, I used to go to that church, but I didn't get anything out of it. Well, that church is probably doing something right because it wasn't intended for you to get something out of it. You're here to bless God. We're, I, we're not here. I, now, don't get me wrong. Do I, get, do I enjoy being in the presence of God's people and be with His family? Yes, I do. I feel off the Sundays that I'm not here. They're very rare, but it, it feels odd. 
But when we say it's a church service, you're not a car being brought into the garage that the service is centered on you. Okay? Service is not to us, it's from us. We're here to serve, not to be served. Service is for Him. It is about Him. The Bible is about Him. The music is for Him. The singing is for Him. The prayer is 